One of the things that I think about a lot is how to talk about the core Buddhist teachings and, to, and how to present the meditation instruction in a way that is consistent with traditional uh, Buddhist values, meaning that I hope to create a context for learning about oneself that is consistent with the possibility of waking up for all of us of being more free, which means that we would suffer less and we would have a greater capacity and pro- greater capacity for and proximity to states of mental and physical well-being, contentment and joy and equanimity. That we would, because of some combination of wisdom and compassion, we would be able to reduce both suffering for ourselves and suffering for other people. The other thing that I think a lot about is how it is that each of us as individuals can live a deeply engaged or or passionate life. How can we actually have the life that we want? And I think probably this is the question that drove me to the Dharma in the first place and has allowed me to stay engaged with the teachings. I think, you know, one of the things that I fear most is not, uh, you know, is dying and not being able to say that I've uh, taken the risks necessary to live the life I wanted. And yet the truth is, it feels like I'm often uh, seeing at increasing levels of depth my own fear and the ways I hold back, you know. So there's this second inquiry that I'm often working with. How do we, all of us, uh, really live uh, a life of meaning, a life of purpose? And then there's a third inquiry here for me that takes up a lot of my my own mental space, if you will, and that is how do these two come together? How does contemplative and meditative practice allow us to really live a life of meaning and value and purpose? How do we develop an authentic um, path in this world? And I share all this because a lot of the times when I teach and other teachers in this and other Buddhist traditions teach, they're talking explicitly about or pointing toward not-self and holding on a pedestal these really lofty aspirations that indicate no matter what is happening in our lives, we should have the capacity to be well, that there should be some high level of insight and understanding and wisdom that allows us to manage our internal world in a way that we are harmonious with life regardless of external conditions. But this inquiry that I'm interested in that I think is very important, and we've talked a little bit about this here on Thursday night, um, this is a little bit different because this is saying there is a self. My self has a name, it's Chris, and I have things that are very important to me, and I want to see that they become real if at all possible. 
And I want for you, uh, in concert with your movement toward insight, that will allow you to be with the conditions in your life, to also be able to work in a way externally that you are, to the best of your ability, creating the conditions to have the life you want. The relationships, uh, the kind of work, the kind of hobbies, um, whatever it is that brings fulfillment. (coughs) So this is not a question that I have, in any final way, resolved, but I think it's important that we all have permission to be on both tracks. There's this track of inner strengthening and transformation whereby we can hold our external affairs. I don't want to say no matter what, but you know, idealistically anyway, no matter what. And we honor and recognize fully that this self, this me, this I, this man, this woman, you know, this parent or this daughter or this husband or this wife or this partner or this teacher or this carpenter or this whoever I am um, really deserves to be on a path of self-seeking. And I would argue that part of our happiness uh, is contingent upon knowing how to do that. Sound good? Right? So, recently um, I came upon a Chinese poet named uh, Chia Tao. And one of the things that I learned about Chia Tao is that every single year, in the later years of his life, he would take all of the poetry that he had written during the year and he would spread them all out on a big table on New Year's Eve by himself and he would sprinkle a little bit of wine on them these Chinese poets were often drinking by the way (laughs) and it's said that he would uh, say to the gods whatever that meant to him this is how uh, I'm reading the explanation of his life that he would say to the gods, here's my heart's blood for one year. Here's my heart's heart's blood for one year. And then he would sing and dance all night until he collapsed and finally fell asleep. I was so blown away by the image. There was just a little short paragraph I read in a book, and I kept going back over and back. The image held me, and... I knew it was speaking to me, telling me something about my life, but I didn't really, uh, I didn't really get it. This happens to me sometimes. I hear a teaching or I read something, and there's this sense of, it's for me. Of course, there's a universal theme here. It's for a lot of us. Um, The sense that something is for me, meaning holds the potential of teaching me something, but I don't know what. I can't see it. I'm sensing it, but I can't see it. So there's this, uh, you know, the same question is here as I reflect on uh, Chia Tao's experience. How is, it that can we, how is it that we can live so fully that at the end of the year, what we have given is our heart's blood? 
how can we how is it that we can live so fully that at the end of the year we have given our heart's blood what are we willing to compromise what fear blocks a fuller life <clears throat> so what Chia Tao's New Year's ritual was conveying was the sincerity of his attitude towards his life work right? the heart across traditions uh, symbolizes the essence of something right? the core of a thing, of a person, of a thing and blood is both the literal and figurative representation of that. So for Chia Tao, his poems were literally his heart's blood. They, the poems <clears throat> embodied the depth of his effort, his convictions, and his sincere attempt uh, to live the way he wanted. This is clear, and this is clear in the ritual. The ritual, as it's told, is very celebratory. He's sort of marking something in a very proud way. One of the things that we know about uh, Chia Tao is that in the later and more mature, mature years of his life, uh, his poems never expressed bitterness. They never expressed regret. It's said that there's some sadness conveyed, but with a very humble, honest, uh, self-acceptance, as if he saw this as a raw emotion and was at peace with it. But a bitterness or a tension or an angst or a regret seemed to be uh, undetectable in any of his work, indicating that um, he may have had a significant level of peace and harmony with how his life has unfo had, had unfolded. We also know that Chiatao uh, suffered extensive chronic poverty and a complete lack of social recognition. And we know how both can wear on the sense of self, particularly in the culture that we live in. Probably more so now than then, but nonetheless. This is a theme that shows up in the work of a lot of the hermit monk poets, where they developed an art form at a very high level, received very little social status, and endured a long-term, if not permanent, struggle with poverty. Nothing much has changed in thousands of years of writing poetry. <laughs> uh, he's famously known to have died without money and only two possessions. A lame donkey, which we can assume he probably threw a bag on every now and again to carry his meager belongings as he moved from place to place, and a five-string zither. And I think um, the underlying message here is that a zither, which can contain up to 50 strings, for him only had five, and again, it's just portraying this uh, lack of material goods. So how do we determine self-worth as practitioners of this tradition which centralizes inner wealth over external gain while still pursuing the life we want externally, right? Whether it's a particular kind of career, 
whether it's an art form, whether it's a hobby that we deem art or something else, whether it's a particular kind of relationship. Some people are really trying to forge relationships. Some people are really trying to create a legal matrimony. Some people really want to have families. Some people are really holding their independence and they want to go at it alone. There's a new movement toward a very popular one of not marrying, of not having children, whatever it is, you know. We have our own ideas about what would create a viable and sustainable and satisfying work life. We have our ideas about how much time we feel we should spend working and how much time we should spend playing or creating or relaxing, etc., etc. So we do have a great many external agendas, for sure. How do we, so again, the question here, how do we reconcile that as practitioners on a path that is centralizing inner richness, right? And if you recall, what I said at the beginning is I'm actually suggesting that we have both and that we give ourselves both. And as practitioners, we look how orienting ourselves in both directions can inform the other, right? So one way that I suggest that we do this is that we learn to see the more subtle value of a contemplative approach to life. So in other words, intimacy. We have to have an appreciation for intimacy. Irregardless of what we're defining as our passion or our heart's intent. If we're going to be moving in the direction of a fundamentally fulfilling life, again, regardless of how we define that, we have to be willing and open and see the possibility of intimacy as a, prox- as a close proximate to that. A uh, uh, student that I work with one-on-one um, called today, we had our session this morning, most of my session work is via Skype, and I said, how are you doing? I hadn't talked to her in two weeks. <clears throat> and there was a long, a really long pause. And sometimes when that happens, people are gathering their thoughts. And sometimes w- when that happens, people are starting to cry or they're about to cry and they're trying not to. <clears throat> and when she began to answer the question, she was, she was clearly crying and she... She said, I'm not, I'm not doing very well. I'm, I'm not doing good at all. And I said, is this not doing well exclusively related to the one incident that we talked about two weeks ago, which had to do with um, a career school decision, whether they would stay on the track they were at? Or does it feel bigger than that? Is there like a broader discomfort? And she said, it's broader. It's everything. And I said, okay. And she said, you know, Chris, I was driving. I don't normally have a car, but I'm uh, borrowing a car. And I was driving the other day, and I pulled into this parking lot, and it was pretty busy, and everybody was trying to find a spot. And someone cut me off, and they took the spot I wanted, and I just lost it. I just started crying. 
And she, she, she explained that in an instant, that one action had mirrored back to her the aggression and greed that in a state of overwhelm, she identified as the, the current reality of the world she lives in. And it, and it triggered this whole host of reflections around what we're doing to the environment, what we're doing to each other, our greed for material well-being. And she just, she ran the gamut of all the possible ways that we could criticize the world we live in. And she said, I just don't want to be a part of it anymore. I can't see how I could be. I can't see how I could make a difference. I don't want to be a part of it at all. She was, and she was just really, really stuck, right? There's, with this view, there's almost no place to go. And of course, one of the things we're working on is, where do I go? What's the next step? What do I do? This, my relationship with her began around the core question, what do I study in order to have the opportunity to have the kind of work that I want to do? Uh, and it's all come to this place of complete not knowing. So what we realized together was that what she wants is to be in a world that's more wise and more compassionate. And what she wants is to make a difference in that being possible. We also realized, and, and this is obvious in her story, that she felt that that task was unattainable. What we also realized is that her motivations came from her sensitivity and her really good intentions. She really had a very pure heart already, you know, quite young, early 20s. And yet, she's already seeing the world through a dharmic lens. Uh, and I'm not even sure yet whether she identifies with dharma or not. I mean, I know that she appreciates the, the core principles, but... So it became aware to us as we continued to work together that really what was available to her right now was turning toward herself in the discomfort, in the sadness, in the anger. Instead of turning away from it, the very possibility of just being with herself was a kind of relaxing of the tension and of the stress and of the animosity. And there was a little bit of an opening. There was a little bit of like, oh, right? So just turning toward whatever it is that comprises our life is itself the connectivity and intimacy that sometimes we're missing. Right? And she saw that. She saw very clearly. And she said, you know, I want connection, right? I want fulfillment. I want richness. Where and how am I going to find it? Well, there's a lot going on for you right now, right? So there's quality of uh, turning toward it, of softening and just being with oneself, right? We didn't answer the question about what she's going to do when she grows up, right? But there's a sense of just facing... Uh, life as it is. So, we have to also be cautious of social status. So, moving on to a second way of thinking about this. And we have to learn to see how attachment to it, social status, engenders suffering tied to a sense of self that is never worthy enough. Do you see this? So, I'm saying... Let's begin to manage our lives to the best we can, the best we can, and yet 
careful, careful for the need to do so for social status or social recognition. The way this shows up as making something happen in the world or doing something happen, doing something so that people see us a certain way because once they see us a certain way, we'll feel better. Right? So just watching for this. Very, it gets very, very subtle. Once I'm this, the part of me that doesn't feel worthy will go away. You see that? So we're, we're watching that. And then we become interested in insight and awakening, particularly on this path. And today I'm talking about that as learning to pay attention to moments when we feel alive or whole versus unwhole or lacking in some way. Learning to pay attention, to feel directly, experientially, when we feel connected versus isolated, right? Paying attention to when we, ver- when we feel happy versus sad, depressed, angry, etc., So what is the source of our, our deepest well-being? If we're, if we're paying attention to the moments in life when we feel these wholesome or healthy or motivating or inspiring, or inspiring qualities, we're also seeing potentially what it is that gives meaning and value to our life. Period. So I feel like there's a, a, a necessary... Uh, it's like the fine print at the bottom of a commercial for like a new medication or something. Somebody's trying to sell us a prescription for something and they have to, by law, they have to, which you can never read. <clears throat> this is not a pursue passion at all cost recommendation. Okay. Um, I've done that and ran out of money and been really stressed out because I didn't have any money, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right, so this is not a pursue passion at all costs uh, suggestion. And in concert with the ethical teachings of Buddha Dharma, it's not a pursue your passion at the cost of someone else's well-being, period. Okay, so I just want to... Um, it's assumed that that ethical orientation is intact. So how do we do this? How do we move in the direction of this core or these core passions uh, while managing in you know, just a very practical and appropriate way for the basic necessities of life? Well, we think about sustainability. Okay, uh, What that means is we, in a very ordinary way, we do the best we can to manage for finances, manage to have our needs for shelter taken care of. If we are not living in a monastery and not wandering from cave to cave, like Chiatao and Basho and all these uh, people we can romanticize about, uh, we do have to give some consideration on how to hold the material plane of life together. Right? We consider our wellness we start by taking care of our body and our mind. And we do whatever is necessary in order to uh, honor that need. Okay? So we're just, we, get, we get clear, we get honest. I have a mind and I have a body, 
and I'm going to take the steps necess necessary to make that as, as strong of a vehicle, uh, as strong of a foundation as possible. And the third, I think, is more subtle, and that's authenticity. What I'm suggesting is that we have to learn how to interpret the feeling of authenticity in feelings associated with, his, with its absence. In my experience, authenticity occurs in concert with feelings of wholeness or rightness or integration. Um, inauthenticity often stirs up even more desire, grasping, clinging. Like I'm, I feel like I'm getting further away from myself. Um, uh, a fastly becoming good friend who I met a couple months ago, who's an artist, said to me the other day on the phone, we were talking about um, the difficulty in creating enough time to be creative with all of the responsibilities that we have. And she said in very plain language, when I'm making art, both during and after, I forget the word she used, but she said, I feel totally complete and I'm happy and I'm just when and immediately after. And... It mirrored back to me the way I feel when I'm involved in something creating, creative, right? Um, and not to suggest that following a passion is necessarily something that we personally determine, define as creative or art or something like that. This is just one example. So we're learning to track how it is, what we're learning to track, what it feels like when our inner values match the outer forms of our living. Does that make sense? Because we know when our inner values don't match the outer form of our lives, particularly over a long period of time, that can be a, a source of stress and anxiety. And it can be a source of grasping, right, which is tana, the second noble truth, the root of suffering, uh, because we're craving so badly to have it be different. And then finally, we have to see that this search of authenticity is one of ongoing development and change, not as a fixed place we arrive at. Right? So part of the delusion of self that keeps suffering intact is that we often believe that there is a place, both internally and externally, that we can arrive at, and we will finally be happy. And Buddhism supports this illusion that we will wake up, whatever that is, and the suffering will just end. And we'll be able to see more clearly how to do what I'm talking about tonight. What I'm saying is that it's actually a moving target. And so we're just aware of that, right? We're just aware of that. So we, we, we basically have to drop this view. We have to drop the view that there is an internal and external place that puts an end to the inquiry, okay? That finally lands us in a life of authenticity and ease. Okay, here we are, you know. <clears throat> Okay. 
I'd like to share one of Chia Tao's poems. It's called Seeking But Not Finding the Recluse. Seeking But Not Finding the Recluse. Under pines, I ask the boy. He says, my master's gone to gather herbs. I only know he's on this mountain, but the clouds are too deep to know where. Seeking but not finding the recluse. Under pines, I ask the boy. He says, my master's gone to gather herbs. But the clouds are too deep to know where. So this is one of the most classic um, motifs in Tang dynasty poetry, and it's really the core of Chia Tao's poetry, and that is seeking the hermit monk or the hermit master, the recluse who's you know, in a distant place that's hard to get to. And uh, sometimes when the uh, primary uh, image or character of the poet, poem gets there, sometimes they're able to sit down and talk to this wise person, but often after this great journey they get there and, and, the, and they're not there. They're gathering herbs, they're fishing, they're off meditating at the next cave, so they never actually get uh, to see the person they want to see. So in this poem, the seeker gets close, gets to the hermitage, finds the apprentice, is able to talk to the apprentice, and the apprentice indicates that yes, the master is around, uh, but I don't know exactly where. And the language is very plain. The teacher's not here. He's in the forest, cloud cover is thick, can't see him. There's no distress, right? There's no, it's like Chiatav himself, right? There's no, uh, toward the end of his life, there's no, there's no argument with the reality of having endured this journey to not find what I'm seeking, right? So the uh, last line of the stanza I'll read it again, but the, pl- but the clouds are too deep to know where, uh, suggests an idea compatible with Buddhist thought. In life, aren't the clouds always too thick to know where the master is, right? Mm-hmm. To know anything really with certainty. To find what we're looking for if it's a moving target. And so we're left at the end of the poem with the possibility of reconciling this with an appreciation of our effort rather than an attainment of the goal. And this is what we see in Chiyotao's New Year's ritual celebration. He's got nothing. No one knows who he is. And yet when he puts on the table in front of him everything that represents how he spent the last year of his life, he celebrates and refers to it as the essence of who he is. This is my blood. And there's no regret.
So that's all we have to do.